Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Talking France, a weekly podcast about the crucial French presidential election and all things France in 2022. I'm your host, Ben McParlin. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will no doubt overshadow and influence this year's election race. And today, I'll be joined by the locals' columnist, John Litchfield, to discuss the impact in France of Vladimir Putin's actions. I'll also be joined by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, as we bring you a run-through of the main candidates in the running to become France's next president and tell you where they stand in the race with just weeks to go. We'll also discuss the cost of living crisis with Sorbonne University professor Claudia Senek and introduce you to some pertinent French expressions that would be handy to know right now. So the race for the Elysee is now off and running, with Monday marking the first official day of campaigning. But it's clear that the minds of French voters, the president and all the candidates are distracted by the horrific and increasingly worrying events unfolding in Ukraine. Here's what John Litchfield had to say about the impact of the war in France. John, this war, we'll talk about it, you know, the, the, its impact on the election race in a moment. But just sum up, this war has really shaken up France. This doesn't feel to the French public that this is happening in a, in a far off part of Europe. This is close to home. Yes. I mean, I think that's true of all countries in Western, Central, Eastern Europe. I don't think France is any different to the others. France is a bit slow, actually, to mount large uh, demonstrations against the war, but there were pretty big ones in Paris and other cities at the weekend. So I think that the, the sense of um, of the, uh, the bigness, the largeness of the moment is beginning to sink in here. 80% of people in the poll um, I saw were very, very concerned by the war. It makes you wonder what the other 20% are thinking. A lot of that concern, though, seems to be fear of what may happen in France in the sense of increased prices, food shortages. I, I was looking at some of the petrol prices here where I am in, in Normandy, and I, I think they just about already crossed two, two euros a litre, you know, um, wow. which is a sort of unheard of level as far as I can remember in, in France. I've never seen them that high. But also food prices, you know, huge shortages of wheat, which is going to have an impact on other food prices and on whether or not farmers can feed their animals. So, yeah, a lot of these are down the road. They may not directly impact the election. They may not have uh, felt um, been felt by the time the election comes in four or five weeks now. But uh, I think that um, if the war carries on, if the crisis carries on, it's going to be a very difficult time, not just in France, but uh, right across the world. We'll hear more from John later on on Macron, his rivals for the Elysee, and why he thinks the war in Ukraine has already ensured who the next president of France will be. Just a reminder to our listeners, this podcast is only possible thanks to those who've supported us by becoming members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce our independent journalism. If you're not yet a member but would like to join, you can find a practically irresistible price for your first month by visiting thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. So the 2022 campaign will certainly not be the one we'd been expecting, but it's here, it's happening, and the election will have a huge impact on the next five years, not just in France, but in Europe and across the world. 
On Monday, the official list of the 12 candidates bidding to be the next French president was released at noon. By now, we know most of their names. Emmanuel Macron, Marine Le Pen, Eric Zemmour, Valérie Pécresse, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and the Paris mayor Anne Hidalgo are some of the familiar ones. Then there's also Yannick Jadot from the Greens, Fabien Roussel from the Communist Party and several veterans of the 2017 race. Jean Lassalle, who was once fined for wearing a yellow vest in French Parliament, the sovereigntist Nicolas Dupont-Aignan and Philippe Poutou and Nathalie Artaud, both from the hard left. There are just five weeks of campaigning before the first round of voting on April the 10th. So let's have a look at the main contenders, who they are, what they stand for and how they are polling. And the best candidate to start with is, of course, the current president, Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron became the youngest ever president of France when he won the election in 2017 at the age of just 39. Five years later, he's announced he is standing again. And at the age of 44, he's still the youngest candidate in the running. Emma, he announced he was running right at the last minute. What did he say to the French people? He announced uh, roughly 24 hours before the deadline, which was 6pm Friday, to um, to get your bids in. And he announced it in the form of a letter to the French people, which was written um, to be published in regional papers on Friday and was also released online on Thursday night. And he it's not really a full campaign manifesto. We'll get that in the future. But he did lay out some of the major points that he wants to focus on over the next five years. Tell us a bit more. And they are the economy, uh, which has been his major preoccupation over the last five years. He says he wants to focus more on equality. He wants to get more opportunities for children. He wants to improve care for the elderly. And he also said something quite interesting, which is that he wants to create a France for our children rather than looking back to the France of our childhoods, which is quite interesting in the context of what some of the far right candidates are saying. One of the remarkable things about Macron is over the last few months, even when he hadn't declared... He was um, very steady in the polling, around 24, 25%, which was basically the same score he got in the first round of the 2017 election. He's been steady up until he announced his candidature. And then what happened? Well, it's been over the last week, really, so before he announced, but he's seen quite a big bounce in his polling over the last week, uh, nearly 6%. So he's now just above 30% in the most recent poll, which is from Le Monde. So he's well out in front. The um, the next candidate is Marine Le Pen, who's on about 14%. So there's clear water there. But obviously, it's just a bounce. It might come back down again, I think. And it's in numerous polls uh, where we've seen this bounce. I think I've just got a quote here from the BVA polling group who said, explain this bounce by saying Emmanuel Macron is benefiting from his triple status as head of state, protector of the people and their values and head of the army and national diplomacy. Uh, And we'll hear from John later just to find out exactly what the current crisis in Ukraine means for Macron's chances of re-election. And we'll move on to Marine Le Pen. Now, this is Le Pen's third presidential bid at the head of the far-right party founded by her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen. It's now called Rassemblement National, or National Rally, which was previously known as the Front National. Emma, you've already mentioned Le Pen is polling at 14%. Has that been the case throughout the campaign? Has she been up or down? She has been a little bit higher. Uh, Previously, she's been a little bit higher and Macron's been a little bit lower. So it's looked a bit more like a two horse race, although he's consistently been out in front. But she's been falling recently. She's lost some votes to Eric Zemmour, who's the other candidate also on the far right. Now, one of the reasons she's been falling recently is to do with her association with Vladimir Putin. Now, just describe what happened uh, recently. Yeah, she'd had 1.2 million election leaflets printed and... 
uh, on page eight of these leaflets was a photo of her grinning and shaking hands with Vladimir Putin, which has now turned out to be not so great and they're not being used. Now, her campaign slogan is Une femme d'État pour la France, meaning... A stateswoman for France. Um, she's kind of playing on the fact that if elected, she would be France's first female president. And I think also trying to present herself as a bit more serious, that she in the past has been seen as a bit of a sort of opposition protest vote candidate. And this is her trying to say, no, I am a stateswoman. I'm a serious candidate. Now, you mentioned Valérie Pécresse. She is the chosen candidate of the centre-right Les Républicains Parti. Uh, she won the primaire or the primary for this party. She had a great start. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. After she was announced as a candidacy, there was even one poll that put her ahead of Macron uh, to win the French election. Since then, things haven't really gone to plan. Tell us what's happened. Well, her campaign has just been not very good, basically, not to put too, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. She benefited, obviously, from being the candidate of one of the traditional parties of government in France. She's the party of, um, former party of Sarkozy, of Chirac. So she benefited from that. But her performance has just not been very impressive. There's been a lot of splits within her own party. She's had a lot of gaffes, a lot of silly mistakes that she seems to have made. Her speeches aren't very good and she just seems to be struggling to make her voice heard. She's described herself as one-third Margaret Thatcher, two-thirds Angela Merkel, presumably in a reference to the fact that she wants to become the first female leader of France, as Thatcher did in the UK and Merkel did in Germany. She's promised to get tough on crime, uh, even suggesting she wants to power hose criminals out of... Uh, tough areas. She's pledged to loosen French labour laws, raise the retirement age to 65, ease inheritance tax, and yet she is struggling to make the the second round. What's she polling at at the moment, Emma? She's currently on uh, 11.5%, so she's actually in fifth place behind both of the far-right candidates and the far-left candidate. So it would be incredible for, again, if France's main centre-right party didn't make or didn't have a candidate in the second round of the French election. Just briefly, does she have an election slogan that's catchy? Uh, yeah, it's all right. It's uh, La Fierté Française Retrouvée, uh, French Pride Rediscovered. Right, well, let's see if she manages to do that, but it's not looking great for Valérie Pécresse. Emma, we now need to talk about Eric. Eric Zamor. Now, Zamor is a well-known TV pundit, journalist and author in France, before he announced he was running, he was probably fairly unknown outside the country. Yet he's been convicted three times for inciting racial hatred. He is of the extreme right. Now, the idea that this guy could make the second round of the French election would seem impossible to me months ago. Yet it is not out of the question. What's he polling at? He's currently polling at 13%, so he's third. So it is possible that he could make the second round at this rate. Now, Zamora is described as xenophobic, anti-immigration, anti-Islam. What does that mean? What are his suggested policies on these areas. Yeah, you're right. He is pretty extreme. Uh, some of the suggestions that he's put forward, he wants to ban parents from naming their children non-French names. And this has been an obsession for quite some time. He publicly lambasted a former minister called Rashida Dati, who gave her daughter a, a Muslim name when she was born. He has suggested that it should be almost impossible to seek asylum in France. He's making only asylum claims made from outside the country will be accepted. He's going to wants to make it much harder to become French, to take French citizenship, and he also wants to ban the hijab, the Muslim headscarf, in all public places. 
Emma, uh, Zamor has been suffering some money troubles recently. Is it true he's been doing runners from French supermarkets? Well, that's not what he says, no. He says he merely forgot to pay for his groceries when he walked out of a fairly posh Paris grocery store this week. Um, He walked out without paying for 38 euro 80s worth of goods. The store saw him later on CCTV and called him and he sent his security guard back with 40 euros to pay for it and said it was just a case of simple forgetfulness and also allowed his security guard to keep the change, which I'm sure was a really good night out for that guy with his one euro 20. Emma, Zamor has chosen his party name or his movement as Reconquest, which evokes the expulsion of Muslims from Spain. And he's also got a slogan which harks back to history. It is... It is Impossible n'est pas français. Impossible is not French. And it's a campaign slogan derived from Napoleon, I believe. Which shows exactly why Zamor is, is often accused of just looking back to France's past and not to the future. The local France has over 10,000 members. Their contributions help us grow our coverage of France and allow us to produce this podcast. If you'd like to join at a discount price, visit www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now, the French left has largely been absent from the story of this election so far. Political turmoil and a large number of candidates split the vote means that only one leftist candidate is currently polling above 10%. He is Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the far-left La France Insoumise Party. Emma, is he still polling above 10%? Yep, he's on 12% and he's lying fourth. In the 2017 election, Mélenchon almost made the second round, just behind finishing just behind Marine Le Pen. Does he have a chance of making the second round in 2022? It's possible, yeah. As I said, he's polling fourth and there's really just a few candidates who are snapping it up for second place at the moment. He seems to be emerging as the sort of useful left vote. As you said earlier, the left has been very divided and there's a lot of candidates, a lot of whom are sort of bouncing around at the bottom at sort of one or two percent and I think a lot of people on the left kind of feel they don't want to waste their vote on somebody who's just trailing hopelessly and he's the best polling candidate. And one of the interesting things about Mélenchon is that well the times I've seen him on television in this election he's been in a slanging match with Eric Zemmour he's one of the few candidates who's been up for taking on Zemmour in live debates now I'm not sure we could call them debates they really just do end up with two candidates shouting at each other, arguing about French history, uh, Mélenchon accusing Zamor every time he speaks of saying, vous n'avez pas honte, aren't you ashamed of the things you, you say? Uh, some of the things Mélenchon wants to do, he wants to raise the minimum wage, re-establish the fortune tax, end France's dependency on nuclear power and take France into the Sixth Republic. Now, what the heck is that? Well, mean? at the moment, we're in the Fifth Republic. And- well, I didn't know that. Yeah, French history, man, it's really complicated. They have all these republics and monarchies and back and forth. It's very confusing. But basically, the Fifth Republic has been in place since 1958. It's the current system of uh, system of government. And you quite often hear people talk about the Fifth Republic really just when they mean since 1958. So you might say someone is the youngest president of the Fifth Republic and that, that just means since 1958. Emma, there's three other candidates we should probably mention. They don't look as though they've got a chance of making the second round, yet they could play an important role in the first round. Uh, We should start with Anne Hidalgo, the current mayor of Paris, who's representing the centre-left party socialist. Uh, She is far off making the second round. She is, yeah. She's polling about 2% at the moment, so she's a long way off. And we shouldn't blame this all on Anne Hidalgo, should we? Yeah, the socialist candidate, party socialist candidate for the 2017 election, uh, Benoit Hamon, who's the candidate who everybody has to look up when they talk about the French elections because he was that forgettable. He polled about 6%. 
So the decline in the, the, the vote for the Party Socialist is a long time in the making. It's not all on Anne Hidalgo yet. She is struggling to make her voice heard. There's no doubt about that. Another candidate on the left, which we, you know, a really interesting candidate, is Fabien Roussel. Tell us more about Fabien Roussel. He's a Communist Party candidate. The Communist Party in France hasn't had a candidate in the national elections for 15 years, but they do always do relatively well at a local level. There are, in fact, 600 communes in France, including a couple of the Paris suburbs, which are currently run by communist mayors. My favourite thing about Fabien Roussel is the name of is his slogan, Happy Days for France, Les, les Jours Heureux. And he's even got a 60-member team called the Happy Days Committee. Uh, I mean, look, if you're going to vote, vote for someone on the basis of a slogan, he's got my vote. Yeah, it's, nothing, it's actually nothing to do with the funds, though. This is a reference back to a, a previous Communist cam, uh, Party slogan, which was in the 1950s, which was the real heyday of the Communist Party in France. And the final candidate we should mention is Yannick Jadot, the Green Party candidate. Emma, does he have a chance of making the second round? What's he polling at? He's polling about 7% at the moment, so he's not doing very well. But the Green Party on a local level is doing very well. It's taking more and more cities, the most recent local elections. It's taking big cities, Bordeaux, Grenoble, Lyon, all controlled by Green Mayors. Very interesting stuff. There you have it. There's the main candidates in the running for the French presidential election. Now, we know the cost of living crisis in France is the number one election issue. The polls have suggested. And Emma, you spoke this week to Claudia Senek, professor at Sorbonne University and the Paris School of Economics, to find out how bad could it get in France and also could Macron pay for it in the election? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we knew that cost of living was going to be a problem anyway. I mean, my baguette is now 120, so it's gone up twice in uh, the last three months. So this is a crisis. But to be serious, we knew that this was an issue already that was already concerning people. And then Ukraine happened. So it's kind of a double whammy there. So we really just wanted to ask her, like, how big of a problem is this? And will Macron survive? Let's hear what she had to say. Obviously, in, uh, in Macron's speech the other night, he sort of warned us to be ready for pain um, in, in financial terms. Um, what impact do you think that the, the war in Ukraine and sanctions will have for people living in France? Yeah, Macron's speech was a little bit like, uh, I promise you uh, 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 blood and, and tears. You know, he was very, uh, very honest about, you know, this is going to be costly. This is going to increase even more the price of fuel because of the the, the closing of the, the gas pipelines. Uh, this is going to uh, have a negative uh, impact on the economy because of the financial sanctions and the uh, closing of the bank accounts, etc. So uh, I think it was it was very concrete, very pragmatic speech and uh, showing that but this is what we have to do. And, and I think it was a way of going a little bit above these, um, these preoccupations uh, you know, at the individual level and showing that uh, we're going uh, into a crisis uh, that you know, the fundamental values that we built our societies on, uh, democracy and freedom and peace, uh, are threatened now. And this is, uh, this is most important. And, and also it's the, it's, it's the time of Europe. I think these are the values. I'm not speaking to a, to a British person, but 
Well, we used to be European. Yeah, of course. No, but uh, you are. You are. I mean, uh, you are more than maybe uh, more than anybody else. Uh, but uh, so th these values of uh, peace and freedom and democracy uh, are the ones that um, Europe was uh, was built on and to promote them. And uh, Europe was always one of the lines of uh, Macron's identity and program. And in general, when you talk about Europe in presidential elections or a campaign, everybody uh, gets un uninterested and, and falls asleep. But this time, uh, I think the, the COVID crisis and now the Ukrainian crisis uh, have shown how important this is and have, uh, have given a revival uh, to, to, this, uh, to this idea, maybe more than ever after Second World War. Uh, because we, can, we see that in order to face all these uh, this, 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 uh, worldwide uh, threats and danger, uh, it's very it's highly relevant to address them with, you know, the European Central Bank, you know, being able to uh, to, uh, to borrow money uh, at the European level, uh, maybe organizing a European de defense and you know, being coordinated in our, in our reaction to, to Putin. So I guess, um, I guess you know, showing that there is a hierarchy of values and, and these values, which are the European ones, uh, okay, there's going to be a price for that. There's a price for our values. Uh, the price is that, okay, the economy is going to suffer. And we know that for, for the people it's, it's harsh, but you know, one thing after the other. Do you think though that the French will continue to accept this when, it, when the reality becomes apparent, when, the, when it's more expensive to fill the car, when the heating bills are going up, when the baguette is more expensive? Do you think they will still accept that as the price to pay for democracy, freedom, peace? I think they are very concerned with the Ukrainian crisis. You know, it's really threatening. Uh, Putin is uh, talking about nuclear war. so. Uh, you know, but also uh, the government has taken measures to to prevent this, this thing. So uh, he, it, it, it already puts a ceiling on the price of, uh, of fuel and, uh, and uh, energy already before the Ukrainian war uh, because of the disorganization, etc. So the prices are already uh, blocked. So it's not going to go up, and this is uh, until June in, pr in principle, and maybe it's going to to to, to continue even after. Don't forget, if you'd like to be able to read John's weekly analysis on France and all our articles, you can join now at a discount price by visiting www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. And now I'll bring in John Litchfield again, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John is, of course, our political columnist, and you can read all John's articles online at www.thelocal.fr. John, you mentioned before how the war has had an impact in France, but what about on the election race itself, and in particular on the chances of Emmanuel Macron being re-elected? Is it nailed on? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I was pretty, I was pretty well of the persuasion that, that he would win anyway. But if you look at it now, who who can one imagine that the French people would elect on April the twenty fourth if not Macron? Zemmour, who's sort of long history of being pro-Putin, Le Pen, likewise, Mélenchon, who blames NATO, America blames everyone except Putin, it seems, although he pays lip service to blaming Putin. Uh, Pécresse is sinking in the polls as, as people move to Macron, it seems, because she's down at 12, 13% in some polls. He's up over 30% now, having been at a regular 24, 25% in first round support for a year almost, and 30% is the first time anyone's been over 30% in the first round polling in this campaign. It'll come down, I'm sure, for the reasons that we were saying before. I think that when some of the 
some of the pain of the war starts to reach France. It's in human nature that, that people will start to blame Macron for that. And I suspect his 30% poll rating will, will, will erode a bit. But I don't see uh, there's any chance now of him, A, not being in the first round and then not being in the second round and then not winning in the second round. Uh, I think that the election is over. But that in itself causes uh, problems, um, which we can perhaps talk about later on. I think that having an election which is a foregone conclusion is a, a little bit against nature and could mean in the end that Macron's victory will seem to be or will be said to be by his opponents something of a hollow one in the sense that he only won because of the war. Mm. I w- uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in, in one moment. You referred to... Um Macron's rivals, or at least three of them, Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the far left, Eric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen of the far right. You mentioned, you've called these, these three, the three Mosqueteers uh, because of their uh, expressed support in the past for Vladimir Putin. What is it about Putin that, that these three candidates have supported? Or why is it that they've been fascinated by him or supportive of him? Yeah, it's, it's something that I, I sort of wrestle with myself. I think it's slightly different for all of them. But, you know, the thing is, it goes beyond those three. You know, you have to look someone like Gérard Depogel. Uh, quite a lot of people um, in the cultural world in France have been sort of Putin sympathizers for, for quite a long time. Michel Welbeck, the, the great novelist, is a big Putin fan. Um, quite a lot of other politicians. Uh, they're all slightly different. I think with, with Mélenchon, it's simply a question of my my enemy's um, enemy is my friend. You know, he's virulently anti-American, virulently anti-NATO, anti-German as well. Mélenchon, despite being the sort of least racist candidate in the world, so he says. Um, so I think it's partly that, that he, he admires Putin for being uh, an enemy of, of his enemies. Uh, I don't think it goes very much deeper than that, frankly. Um, with Marine Le Pen, I think it's sort of opportunistic, as most things are with her. She, she raised money for the last campaign through a Russian bank, uh, it's something like, rather like Mélenchon in a way that she's anti-European, she's anti-NATO, she's nationalistic. Therefore, anyone who's a nationalistic, uh, strong president who's um, anti-NATO, anti-EU, she she sort of feels an attachment to. Zemmour goes farther than that, you know. I mean, uh, Zemmour, if you look at the things he said, he is a Putinist. I mean, you know, what does Putin say? He says that Russia has a sort of right to be a great nation, has been betrayed and pushed down by these other wicked countries in the world. What does Moore says? He says France is, has a right to be a great nation, has a duty to be a great nation, and has been pushed down by wicked people in the world and traitors within France. Mm. The similarities between Zemmour's narrative and Putin's narrative are actually quite striking. Mm. And it's partly a religious thing, you know, partly a kind of anti-woke thing, a sense that here's a man who's anti, anti-gay, who's anti-liberal, sort of you know, all the things that we are. And therefore, we admire the fact that he's a strong man who, who's kind of giving difficulties to the people that we, we also dislike, the uh, mm. EU, Americans. So they're all slightly different. Yep. I think they're all now embarrassed, obviously, by some of the things they've said in the past. They've all slightly switched their position. They're all now describing Putin as a, as a sort of, you know, as a, as a wicked man, as a, has gone crazy and so on. But they very quickly come to the butt. But they're suggesting, and there's some truth in that, that the West has played Putin very badly over the years, that somehow it's, it's NATO's fault, which I don't agree with, uh, and that uh, this could have been avoided. Well, 
and that Macron's uh, not been any way helpful in trying to avoid it. So, I mean, like, like you mentioned, this war has kind of undermined the, the, the campaigns for these three who have previously expressed support for Putin and Russia, but it's, it's reinforced Macron's message that he's been pushing over the years now of, a, you know, the need for a stronger Europe. Um, Macron is on the front line of this kind of diplomatic efforts to bring a ceasefire and an end to hostilities. He had another hour and three quarters on the phone with Vladimir Putin yesterday. Is the feeling in France, do they feel happy that their president is on the front line? Do they trust him? Does Europe trust Macron at the moment to try and handle these diplomatic efforts to bring a ceasefire? Well, separating those two, in France, I think people that don't like Macron, who are quite number, numerous, as, as you know, uh, are sort of mocking what he's doing and saying, what good do these calls do? He's, they're saying either he's being played by, by Putin or that he's somehow um, uh, giving Putin some sort of credibility by talking to him at all. I think most people uh, think it's... I would think as well that it's it's right for someone to be in touch with Putin. At some moment, possibly Putin will have to try and find some way out of this. And good that there should be someone that Putin feels able to t talk to. And it does seem that Macron is not the only person he's able to talk to. I think Putin has talked to Schultz in recent days as well. But he's had, I think, four phone calls with, with Macron, one at his own request, three at Macron's request since the... Um, War began. Uh, two of those, at least, have been at the request, at the request to Macron of Zelensky, the, the um, Ukrainian president, who asked him to put things directly to, to Putin. So I think I would say that Macron is playing an essential role. And the fact is that it does appear that Putin, for whatever reason, feels he can talk to Macron when he isn't can't talk to the others. Is he trusted by other countries? There was a lot of criticism of Macron's uh, visit to Moscow and some of the things he said there, but I think now it is, from what I can tell, it is being seen by the other Western countries that Macron is a useful conduit uh, of information from Putin and to Putin. And yes, I think overall, and the French have been utterly lockstep behind the West's uh, reaction since the war began, whatever, they may have had a slightly different view before the war began, and they were not the only ones in that. So I don't think there's any criticism of Macron out there now, no. Okay. Um, just moving on, I mean, John, look, we're a few weeks out from the first round of the election. Normally, French TV, you know, French news channels would be full of debate over, you know, the matters in the election, interviews with candidates, following campaigns candidates around the campaign trail. It would be pretty much election coverage nonstop. I was watching BFM over the weekend. It was war coverage nonstop. It feels like, you know, this election is going to sneak up on us without, you know, without the kind of usual uh, debate and kind of coverage on the TV. Macron will be elected, as you said, he'll become president. Is there a danger then that people, voters, are going to again question his legitimacy. I remember after the, you know, talking to the Gilets Jaunes uh, in, in, during their protest, many of them said, you know, Macron's not, not, not even a real president. He only got in because he was against Marine Le Pen in the second round and because lots of people didn't vote. Abstention could be high again. But will they say, well, look, Macron only got in because of the war this time. And then will that lead to street protests and, and you know, antagonism and hatred towards Macron that we've seen once again in the five years that, could, that are ahead of us? 
Yes, but that would have probably happened anyway. You know, he probably would have been against a far-right candidate in the second round. Many of the same arguments would be used, and the anti-Macrons were anti-Macron. You know, there would have been an element of that. Will, it, will there be some truth to it at this time? That's the question, because there wasn't much truth to it last time, in the sense that he was elected in two-round system that had existed in France um, since uh, 1965, so you can't really blame him for being elected on the system he, that, that, that was there. This time, I think you're right that if the if if and I say it's a if if the um, turnout falls very below, it was about 77 percent, I think last time. If it falls, which was low in French terms, a little. If it falls way beyond that, then it does look as if he's been sort of badly elected, as the French say, he's been elected without a proper mandate. Um, even if he wins in the second round by a large score, as seems probable. Um, if there's hardly any campaign, if there's no sense of his five years having been tested, if there's no sense of his new ideas having been tested, all those things will be, I think, legitimate arguments that it's been a kind of hollow election. And it's something that I'm aware, I'm aware that the Macron people are very aware of and worried about. Now, finally, Emma, a French election campaign is always a good opportunity to learn some new French words and phrases. Uh, I already mentioned Valérie Pécresse's uh, promise to power hose estates in France. The French she, the French verb she used was cachère. What's cachère? It's actually not a French word at all. It's a German word. It's a, it's a manufacturer who make uh, tools, including power hoses. So when she said to cache the the bonlier, she really meant to to power hose the uh, the bonlier, get rid of the criminals. And a great one that came up so far, not quite linked to the campaign itself, was Emmanuel Macron's use of MRD, which we translated to as to piss off. It really caused a, a stink in the uh, foreign journalist community over how to translate it. But what was he referring to again? He said he wanted to emerde the unvaccinated, so he wasn't going to forcibly vaccinate them, but he was going to make their lives difficult. Emerde. Now, you've picked out a couple more that we want to let readers know about. Tell us about them. I've got a new coinage for this week, actually, which is Deswifte, which means to disconnect Russian financial institutions from the SWIFT network. Wow. Um, and the, there is a, a noun for it as well. It's le deswifting, which to me sounds very Anglo, that I-N-G ending. And I think my favourite that comes up every time is, I'm not sure we're going to pronounce this correctly, is boule puante, which literally translates as stink bombs, but uh, refers to kind of scandals or unforeseen bad events that rock candidates during an election campaign, often released to the press by their rivals, uh, boule puante. And you had one more, Emma? Uh, yeah, just the cancana, uh, mostly because I really like how, it's, uh, how it sounds, but it just means the five-year term. So we're looking back at the cancana de Macron and we're looking forward to the cancana of whoever wins the election. It's the, the term the French use for the five-year presidency. Great. And a reminder to readers, if you have any French words or expressions you want us to explain in the podcast and try to pronounce, we can't promise we'll pronounce them right. However, uh, just email us at news at the local dot fr. So thanks to John, Emma and Claudia for joining me this week. Please feel free to send us any feedback on this podcast or any questions you'd like us to answer. You can email news at the local dot fr. We'll be back around the same time next week with more insights into France in 2022 and the ongoing election race. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.